Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, BQE Core, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Paul Petrunia. Paul is the founder and director of Archonnect, the internet's first online publication, job board, and community platform for the architecture industry. He's also the publisher of Ed Magazine, founder of Brutal Coffee, founder of Bustler, and co-producer slash co-host of the podcast, Archonnect Sessions. In this episode, we discussed the early days of the internet that we experienced and how Archonnect began, which was born out of Paul's architectural education at SciArc. But the real reason for talking with Paul was to dig into why Archonnect was started in the first place and how the community has evolved over the years, especially in the larger landscape of social media, podcasting, and blogging. We also discuss the role of an entity like Archonnect having and expressing their values on the internet as guideposts for a community, the idea of your name versus pseudonyms on platforms in regards to expressing one's thoughts and cancel culture, the civility or lack thereof in conversations online today, the different ways in which people communicate online, the effects of social media on one's mental health, and so much more. This was a fantastic conversation with Paul, who I also ride mountain bikes with, so it was great to catch up with him on a professional level. And I hope you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that you'll help add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. In addition to leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, it's the smallest act of generosity you can do to support this show and to help broaden the reach of conversations like these in my attempt to elevate the industry. I would also appreciate you visiting the sponsors who helped make this episode possible. Thank you so much. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Paul Petrunia. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you. And and you know, it's been so long since we've seen each other. How how are the how's your mountain bike? It's um, you know, I I don't know if I filled you in. Oh, uh, by the way, thanks for having me, Evan. It's, it's great to be on the show. Yeah, I, I think I told you uh, there was there was a problem with uh, the spindle on my bike. So uh, bike company is sending me new parts, and I'm it's just my bike sitting there looking at me, you know, with those sad eyes every day. I, I'm just not going to take the risk in uh, cracking that. Yeah, definitely a good idea. They're too expensive to break. Yeah, bikes have, mountain bikes especially, have entered into the uh, luxury item category, it seems like these days. Well, they, they make the parts out of, what is it, like unobtainium now, right? So it's a supply chain issue. It's a cost issue. They they're, they cost as much as cars. So anyway, I fill the audience in. Paul and I have ridden mountain bikes together a few times, and Paul is an expert rider. It's fun to go riding with you. So I'm looking forward to more more adventures on the trail. Yeah, I mean it's always it's always a blast riding with you. I just try to keep up with you. Well, I'm super caffeinated, ready to talk about architectural community. 
I am. Yeah. You know, I, it was a strange feeling, feeling like unprepared to talk about myself and what I do. But then I realized like, you know, what, what kind of, uh, what kind of research can I do before an interview <laughs> like this? So I, I guess I'm ready as ready as I'll ever be. This is the, this is the way Paul, this is how we do it. There is no research to be done. I, I think, um, you know, one thing that I've, I've been intrigued in is building architectural community and something that this show addresses uh what's the right word like it's just it's just kind of adjacent right like that there is a tech aec tech community out there and i know that your community is is different than that but i think that um that's something that i wanted to talk to you about because you were one of the early architectural communities on the internet maybe even one of the first right so um you and i both are similarly um i don't want to say aged but (laughs) but we started on the internet when it was early days and you specifically really went in that direction from architecture school Uh, and um so i think that your perspective is great on this and and you've created uh an active community online with arconnect so I, I just wanted to kind of open up the conversation with that and we'll see where it goes. I have some other ideas, but we'll see what happens here. So maybe you can kind of take us back and tell us the story of, of how Arconnect began and maybe some of the interesting things that have happened over the years. I can imagine there's there's got to be a lot of good stories in there. So going all the way back, this is a story that I've told um, a few times. So apologies to anybody that's heard it before. But, you know, I I guess... My passion for architecture began when I was quite young and as a kid who was passionate about architecture and really curious about what was going on in the world of contemporary architecture, as opposed to, you know, historic architecture, which is, which has always been relatively easily accessible by anybody uh, in terms of, you know, reading through books or traveling. As a kid, I would, I would ride my bike to the, uh, to the local university in Victoria, British Columbia, where I grew up to pick up copies of magazines like A plus U and architectural record and progressive architect. You know, it was, it was just so mind blowing, the kind of work that, that these publications were publishing that was almost completely inaccessible to the average person. You know, these magazines were not available at newsstands or in bookstores. You really had to go to academic institutions to find them, at least where I was growing up. So, you know, fast forward a few years, uh, I I was studying architecture. I was at the University of Oregon in, uh, I started in 1995, right away at at the University of Oregon, since they were, they were quite tech forward at the time, which was surprising because I, I actually went there for their uh, sustainable design program. So as, as much of a kind of a crunchy hippie type of environment, it was also very advanced. So there were opportunities to, um, to pick up web design and there were, there were professors there that I was learning under that were very supportive of uh, learning how to do this on my own with some help from some of the teachers there. So I, I did that and I uh, eventually designed a website for the School of Architecture and Allied Arts for University of Oregon. I did uh, you know a million different variations of my own personal website at the time, which didn't have much to put in, you know, as a first year I think when architecture we talk, student. 
we talked about this idea as uh, there was definitely animated spinning logos on every website back then. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> deny that my website didn't have anything spinning and animated. But, uh, you know, at in 95, that was the beginning of images on the Internet. You know, up until Netscape 1.0, which is what I started on, images were not even possible. You just had to kind of pick a background color. I think the font options were pretty limited to Times New Roman and maybe uh, Arial. Remember that gray, that medium light gray background that was just the default color of that the web, web browser used to render everything on top of it? It's so odd to me because it wasn't just a white background. It wasn't just like a white page. It was like that that light shade of gray. What was the hex for that? <laughs> That shade of gray. That's what I, I think mean. it was. I think it was E three E three E three. Yeah, it was a light a light gray, uh, probably inspired by the color of uh, a mid nineties desktop computer. Yeah. So you know, once I started creating websites for myself in the school, and I started creating websites for some of the my class projects. I started to recognize the potential in solving the problem that I that I encountered as a kid. You know, I saw this as as an opportunity to provide information and content to anyone who wants it around the world using this new medium. And then, you know, shortly after that I recognized the the ability to kind of bring people together and communicate online, you know, as, as the possibilities that the internet brought became more, more apparent. So I, I started Archonnect in 1997. I think it was the first architecture community. I remember there, there were a couple um, architecture websites around. I think there was an architecture bookstore here in California that had a website, but the, the, uh, the amount of architectural presence on the internet was next to nothing at the time. So, and there were no, you know, there was no social media. I think, I think uh, MySpace started in 99. Um, so there was, there was nothing at the time. So, yeah. So I, I created Archonnect with this, with this goal, you know, that the name Archonnect was architecture connection. You know, the, the idea was to bring, bring people together. Um, I was at the time, especially excited about, about sharing the work of this exciting young emerging group of web designers that I thought were using the web in a very architectural way, you know, in, in that architecture is really kind of a, a blending of art and science. And these web designers were, you know, just popping out of nowhere because, you know, again, they had this, they had this new uh, canvas that was, that had an audience of, you know, potentially the entire world. So, um, yeah, so I started inviting web designers to participate. I, I started bringing in a lot of the local architecture community. It started out in a very similar way that Facebook started. Facebook kind of started it in the um, Harvard community and you had to have a Harvard like EDU address even to to get on it at that point, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. And so SciArc was where I was studying at the time in '97. I um, I had transferred from University of Oregon to SciArc, and when I got to SciArc, I was I was totally blown away by the work that the students were pinning up on the walls in terms of just kind of stunning visuals and really interesting concepts and ideas. So I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity to really, I mean, 
it's one thing for contemporary architecture to be difficult to access at that time, but to see what kids in school were doing, you know, the future of, of the industry were, were studying in school. That was a whole other thing. So I used it as an opportunity to start sharing projects of that my, my fellow students and some of the faculty were working on. And that quickly generated a lot of excitement. So the, the traffic blew up right away and, you know, the local community in SciArc, and then it started spreading out to other schools like UCLA. Friends, you know, would start sharing links with each other and um, just kind of naturally extended outside of that, that home base. Man, I'm just, I'm just thinking back now to the days of hearing the modem sounds and uploading everything to a server via FTP and, you know, index.htm or HTML and everything was done in simple text back in the day, right? It was just coded by hand and stealing code from other websites. View source was, was ma- a major part of building websites and copying and pasting pieces out of that into your own text documents, uploading those, seeing what happened, tweaking it endlessly, iterating, just iterating, iterating on all that. It was, it was so fun. I, I just remember spending so many late hours doing that kind of stuff. It was, it was really, it was really exciting. And it was a time that I don't think many people will, will remember, you know, back then I would agonize over how to bring down the size of an image on the website by five kilobytes. You know, it's the, uh, these days it's no problem to post an image that's five megabytes. I mean, but back then a difference of five kilobytes would probably make a difference of a total of maybe a few minutes of download time when browsing different pages on, on a site. So yeah. And, and just, you know, as you said, learning from learning how to code through just looking at source code, it's kind of, it was kind of like moving to another country to pick up a language. Um, you know, I tried some of the earlier web design software like Dreamweaver and, uh, and some of the other options that were available back in the nineties. And it all just created, it was really easy to use, but it created a lot of garbage code. And back then, you, you couldn't remember afford. you would look at that code and you're like what is this stuff it's not doing anything and the more characters that were in the code the more space it took up right and so it really was like how do i do it the simplest way but also get what i want and yeah i, I remember everybody's running a cracked version of photoshop right a pirated version of photoshop because we we're all students and I'm sure Adobe was totally fine with that because they knew we were all getting addicted to Photoshop. And then we'd run everything through Graphic Converter to smash that file down as small as possible, like you were saying. So, yeah, there's fond memories there. <laughs> and, and you know, some of these values that I established back then have definitely stuck because, you know, these days everybody's got quick internet. But still, there's just something about a very cleanly coded site with with. Uh, you know, with no bloat images that are properly uh, optimized. There's just a lot of beauty in that, you know, and it's the kind of thing that I think most people on online these days would never notice because everything loads fast. That's true. But I think you're, when you think about people who do code, they probably do think like that, right? They, they look for well-commented, cleanly structured code when they're building applications and like this was my first foray into code beyond like when i was in the fifth grade learning apple basic to 
make something print on the screen, right? This was real coding. I mean, because it was turning code into layouts and images and, you know, structured data, like tables and things like that. And I felt like it's very different than the architectural process, which was messy and layered. And it didn't matter what it took to get to that end beautiful thing that was pinned up on the wall. It was all fair game, right? You could do anything. You could tear apart a model and th- glue it back together. And and it was like Frankenstein, right? But But the web was different. It was like minimal and it was beautiful. And in that in that minimalism, in that simple coding and it, no extra characters, no extra kilobytes in the images. It was as, as lightweight as it could possibly be. And I felt like these are the kinds of things that informed the well-rounded kind of generalist nature that I've always kind of aspired to. I, I always want to do a lot of different things. Um, and, and I felt like this was a interesting counterpoint to the architectural design process. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's an interesting take because I've, al- I've always seen the similarities between creating a website and creating a building. But, um, but as you mentioned, there are some uh, drastic differences as well in that process. And now I think it's a lot different. The computer programs that architects use today are very much like the design process that we learned in school, which was, and I have always been a little bit like taken back by this. I always think it's a little bit weird because I'm very intentional with the way that I use software, but I see other people and they're just like breaking stuff and deleting stuff and replacing things. And they treat it very much like just having rolls of trace on the table. And I always, I, I, it's interesting to think about how you, how software is pretty resilient nowadays. Like Photoshop can take hundreds and hundreds of layers. You remember when we would like save a file and it would take 30 minutes to save, like preparing to save was a dialogue box in Photoshop back then. Do you remember that? Like when it would try to start to take everything out of the RAM disk or the the swap space and try to get it onto the hard drive that was tiny. I just remember uh, we had to be really intentional even with our software back then. But nowadays it's like Revit files are gigabytes in size and Photoshop files are gigabytes in size. And every episode of my podcast is 200 gigs. It's enormous. Back then, like that was it was unheard of and you, you couldn't even think like that. Yeah, I mean, I remember my first computer that I got. It was a Mac, uh, a Mac desktop in '95, and it had a 500 megabyte hard drive, 16 megabytes of RAM. And the guy at the store was like, "You're never going to need another computer. I mean, this is going to last you forever." Uh, but yeah, it's you know, it's interesting. It's like technology is is increasing to allow us to be more sloppy and lazy, you know, it's uh, more like humans. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, I think it's kind of following a similar trend that we see in, in many parts of our lives that, um, we, we don't need to be that careful anymore to, to produce what seems fine. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about community. I mean, there's one part of web design is creating kind of a presentation and a one-way type of communication. But the community that you have on Archonnect is multifaceted. There's lots of inputs coming into this, what what people end up seeing on the screen. So how did you shift it away? Like you said, you started to share work of your fellow students and, and professors and things at SciArc. 
But how did you actually shift to becoming like a content hub that lots of people pushed information into? It's interesting because it was a it was kind of surprising at the time. I think it was maybe 1998 that um, I decided I found some JavaScript chat uh, widget that somewhere online, and I was like, "Oh, this is pretty cool." Um, you know, you can have a live conversation with other people right through the the website. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try this out. And uh, I invited some well-known figures in architecture and uh, other, uh, other fields to, to um, have a scheduled time where they would come in. And I guess it was kind of an early version of, uh, you know, AMA, ask me anything. So I just set up this JavaScript chat box on the website and said, Hey, you know, this guy's coming on, you know, at, at two o'clock on Friday come in and ask them questions, chat with them. And uh, the, the turnout was crazy. I mean, I had no idea that, that so many people were interested and willing because back then it was like, there wasn't really, you know, people were chatting on ICQ. How do you get the word out? Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's, there were BBSs and there, there weren't that many chat rooms out there at the time, maybe on AOL. And I mean, back that was probably before what you're talking about, but like you could see how it led up to this, but it was still kind of asynchronous in a way, right? Like it was like you would put a message online and then you didn't know when somebody was going to respond to that. It was like check back in a day or two or three or a week and there might be a response. But to ICQ kind of changed that. Like that's kind of the early days of of synchronous chat that happened online. Yeah. Yeah. So when I when I saw this, this massive turnout to have these conversations. I mean, it was, it was actually problematic because it was almost impossible to have a regular conversation given the, the, uh, the format of these JavaScript uh, chat widgets. It made me realize that I could probably just start a discussion forum so that, you know, people could just talk about whatever they want in different rooms and different threads. So I worked with a web designer friend of mine and he developed a flat file, uh, discussion forum system. And uh, right away that just took off. Um, you know, back then there was no Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. So it became, <clears throat> it became a place not so much to talk about architecture, but it's just a place for architects to come together and talk with each other about anything. So, so that, yeah, that, that really took off. You know, there were limitations. There was no you know, signing in, there was no verified accounts. There was no login required. Anybody could post a comment or a thread. They would just uh, put in whatever name. If they left their name out, it would automatically default to your name because that was the uh, the text that was uh, in the in the field. So a lot of people became your name. You know, people were more civilized back then. So it even though there was no registration or login or any moderation tools, it, it ran pretty smoothly and, uh, and people started showing up from all over the world, from different industries. And it was super exciting. And that, that changed a lot when social media came about because, you know, all of a sudden everybody had the ability to create their own, their own worlds and their own kind of small networks. So, you know, online forums 
the nature has has dramatically transformed since social media came in and allowed people to kind of exist within their own bubbles. But your forum has persisted. The Arconnect forum is there. It's super active. And so what how what's the right way to put this? Like how has that happened? Because yeah, there are so many other like blogging isn't even really a thing too much anymore, right? Everybody had a web blog back in the day. And because of social media um, and, and in a couple of ways has kind of crushed blogging. It's not to say it doesn't have a place and it, and it won't ever come back, but long form content is most people don't, don't participate in long form comment content besides like podcasts and maybe long lectures and stuff that are on YouTube. Right. Like that's another thing that Facebook and Twitter have done, but the forum has persisted and not to say that it's all long form content, but you do, you guys do post articles on there. Your staff posts articles, you have contributors, and then there's comments on those, which kind of becomes a mini forum about a particular topic anyway. Right. So how did that persist through all of this? Was it just because of the ties within the community and the, the people that were in it? Well, there's a few different ways to look at that. One way which might be the most simplistic is that um, some people started to move away into Facebook and Twitter where they can control the people that they're, that they're conversing with. You know, I've, I guess I've always, I've always thought of the, the forum on Arconnect as, um, as like, a big nightclub or a bar or, or a party. First of all, there's no freedom of speech rules, you know, in a place like that. It, 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 it's, it's a private environment where if you misbehave or act in a way that, that pisses everybody off, you're, you don't have the right to just stay forever. But, you know, it's, uh, I think that people start to become more selective with who they talk to. From 97 until now, the, the, pop, the online population has dramatically increased. So a Wild West kind of format where anybody can join um, from around the world, I don't think would work that well anymore because it's, uh, there's just too many people and there's too many topics. So I think some people decided to kind of uh, curate their own their own worlds in which they they kind of chat on a regular basis and I think Arconnect kind of took on more of a role of being a specialized place where architects are and they don't necessarily need to know each other but it's it's a place where where if you want to talk about something architectural or if you just want to talk about something with other architects that's a place you can go and there's no there's no baggage. There's no. Um, there's not necessarily an identity that you need to um, uh, verify. You know, since we don't we don't uh, require um, any you know real identity. I, I just I I'm just wondering how it persisted, right? Because I think you're you're alluding to many different ways in which people found it to be a a safe place to do the things like you're talking about, and it starts to lead me to think about another topic that we brushed upon last time we talked, which was pseudonyms. A lot of people online, I think coming back from when we started online 
and and there were movies out there that popularized this back in the day, right? But it was very, you know, like The Matrix is a good example of this. Like they, there was Neo and there was Trinity and people had these pseudonyms and that's what they were known for. And and with something as long lived as the Archonnect Forum, I can imagine that there are pseudonyms that have, be, that is the person's identity, but also that's starting to come back up again, as, as we talked about um, with, with crypto, starting to see that again quite often. And there are, there are a lot of people online who, like on Twitter, who have also adopted that, but there's a lot of people who haven't, right? They, they're more comfortable tying their true identity to their thoughts and things. But I think, you know, as we, as we kind of previously discussed, there's good things about that and there's bad things about that as well. So maybe we start to shift our topic more around that now with, with pseudonyms is what are the good and the bad things that you've seen at Arconnect over the years based on that? Like, like one thing we talked about was it's, you have a little bit more freedom to say what you really think because no, no one knows who that's really attached to. Yeah. I mean, um, just to kind of quickly go back to the original question about how did we, um, how are we still so active? How is the forum still so active? Part of that, I, I, I don't really know, but I, some theories are that, um, I, I feel like we do pay attention to our community, you know, as opposed to some, some other, like, you know, for, for example, Reddit or something, you know, if somebody has a feature request, we'll pay attention to it. If somebody is complaining about somebody, we'll take it really seriously and, and do kind of a more thorough uh, analysis of that, of that user's activity to determine whether or not they should be kicked out or, or stay. Uh, moving on to uh, pseudonyms. Yeah, that's been a topic that that we've debated for years, and there's no there's no clear answer on whether pseudonyms are good or bad. I've heard from many people that that I actually respect very much on Arconnect that they could not possibly uh, communicate with their own name. And these days, given the kind of you know culture we live in where you have to be very careful about what you say, I understand that. You know, I understand that that um, a lot of these people are not just representing themselves, but they're representing the the firms or the schools that they that they worked at. And I've also heard from people that I respect a lot in the Arconnect forum that are very strong in the belief that they they do need to represent themselves and they wish that everyone else would. But I do know that there have been some very valuable contributors over the years that would not have been contributors if they had to use their own name. That said, you know, I've met there have been some pretty nasty contributors on Arconnect that I that drive me crazy that I have then met in real life and they've been extremely pleasant and a completely different uh you know person so it shows it shows the kind of the kind of disguise that people have that that anonymity gives people a lot of confidence and that confidence can be a good thing or a bad thing I kind of think think about road rage right it's like <laughs> i have this cage around me that i'm driving 75 miles an hour down the freeway in, and i can do whatever i want because you don't know who i am it's like it's this it's this it's a mask of sorts that you're, you take on a persona, potentially. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. In this podcast, I talk a lot about all the realities with my guests. You know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the realities. And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. 
Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content, as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king, and the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox, AWS, Azure. Chances are you probably save them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now it's where do all those files live. Avail takes where out of the equation, which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission-critical and not-so-critical files too, right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing the systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by an acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and is brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to our conversation. One time I was, I was uh, driving to an appointment and there was a guy driving like a, like a jerk cutting in front of me and then he, you know, fingering me. And then, you know, I was getting pissed off back and, you know, we were both being immature and, you know, typical LA road rage. And then we keep on going the same way. We pull into the same dry, same parking lot. And I think, oh, great. We're pulling into the same parking lot. Turns out he was my uh, physical therapist. I was getting physical therapy at the time. So I just, and then, and then we spent the next hour, you know, working directly together. <laughs> Didn't mention anything about it. We both pretended to, uh, to not, not be aware, but that was, that was really strange, but ended up, he was a super nice guy. 
It, it could have been even better if he was your psychotherapist. <laughs> that would be interesting. From, from a lot of psychotherapists I know, I'm sure they, they've got some pretty bad rage issues. Uh, they're, not, they're not always the most uh, healthy people. <laughs> they're not always but, the um, ones who should be asking the questions, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to say. But, you know, even, even in an environment like Facebook, which does try to enforce that people use their real identity, they, they go to pretty, pretty big lengths to, uh, to, to try to enforce that. There's still a lot of horrible stuff going on, you know, and so people, people will, I don't know, you know, we live in a very, very divisive time that I think people are feeling more and more confidence to uh, stand their ground in a, in a more extreme way than they used to. And that makes online discourse that much more difficult, especially, you know, because at least in person, there's, there's a little more civility that that's usually involved. And there's so many ways to interpret the written word, written text that could be not the intended context at all, right. That are the tone. Right. And I I've always seen that in it and it happened with email or, or text messages, right. Where you, you assume the way that it was intended. And that could be completely opposite of the actual intention, depending on words or just your mental state at the time. And I could imagine there's been a lot of flame wars <laughs> right on our connect that were total misunderstandings. For sure. Yeah, it's absolutely true. There are, uh, especially when it comes to the internet, because people in other parts of the world that exist in, in cultures that are foreign to, you know, what, what each individual uh, person is familiar with, they, they communicate in different ways. You know, some cultures are much more direct and straightforward. Others are very flowery in the way that they, they express themselves, you know, ensuring that, you know, with a lot of uh, emojis and yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of truth in, in, in how communication is perceived. Yeah. There's like, <laughs> I'm very non-confrontational, but there's people who are so direct that it doesn't bother them to have confrontation. Even thinking about how we're trained as architects to be have, have a thick skin during these these crazy crits that we pin our stuff up on the wall and the juror comes in and it's all about them and their ego and they shred you to pieces and you learn to develop that thick skin. But I'll go online and it's like there's so many things out there that just instantly hurt your feelings, right? It's, a, it's really interesting to think of uh, how humans communicate and how well or not well we do that <laughs> on a daily basis. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I definitely have developed a thick skin over the years, not just because it doesn't bother me as much about what people might say about me, but um, I've also come to realize that, you know, everybody's got their own things going on and, you know, they're having a bad day or maybe there's just the anonymity and, you know, so it's like you kind of take everything with a grain of salt. But, you know, there's even uh, celebrities that exist in the public realm that, are, you know, shutting down their Twitter accounts every day because they just can't handle the, the, uh, the online abuse. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it can be pretty, pretty hard for people, you know, and I, 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 and it's, and it's one thing if I experience an attack online, you know, I, I know that I feel a certain way about that. If I see someone else getting attacked online, 
it's a very different perspective. You know, I, I kind of see both sides. I'm like, yeah, that guy who's attacking this guy is like out of his mind, you know, and I, you, nobody can actually take this person seriously. But then that person will reach out to us and say like, hey, I'm being attacked online. And, you know, sometimes I'll talk to them personally and and say, you know, it's uh, yeah, that really sucks. But um, but I think it's pretty clear to to all of our readers that this person is is uh, is there's something going on with them. Yeah, but it's hard to not take not take things like that personally. Yeah, I I think about Arconnect as kind of a it's like a subculture or a counterculture movement within architecture. Would you characterize it that way? I think SciArc is similarly characterized in my mind like that. I didn't go there, but I just I think of it as like splintering off from Cal Poly in its earliest days with Ray Cappy, and that was kind of one of the the big pushes. Then it just felt very countercultural. But do you see Arconnect kind of of the same DNA as that? I think so. And I think that, that it might, it's probably not so much a conscious decision, but it just may have naturally evolved, you know, maybe because I came out of a community like SciArc and I, I hire people that are kind of like-minded. Um, you know, I, we do, we do recognize that, that we may be kind of a, a subculture of the industry when, you know, sometimes um, our articles will, will blow up virally and we'll get a much wider architectural audience to an article than our typical audience. And we'll get very different feedback. You know, it's especially in the last couple of years when we, when we've been addressing a lot of issues of uh, racial inequities, there's a pretty there's a pretty big, uh, you know, conservative, straight up racist uh, component of our of our industry that that still exists, and and it's and it's made quite clear when when our content reaches outside of our immediate, you know, more more regular audience. I mean, that's just one example, but there are there are a variety of of different kind of subcultures and architecture that I feel like like I am not that familiar with, and and probably a lot of our our audience is not that familiar with it's a what big industry. Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine that it's, yeah, it is kind of a, a, a subculture of the industry and the internet has enabled those people to find each other through places like, like your landing page. But how is, what kinds of stories like that are you talking about? Like I can imagine you guys break some kind of news that most other people wouldn't even publish because there's more of this. To me, it feels like, there's this ad hoc kind of nature to like, we don't, we don't specifically talk about certain types of stories within architecture. It's like, this is architecture laid to bear, like the bare metal of architecture. Is that, is that fair to say as well? I'm just thinking like with, with Arcanex kind of, I don't know, punk rock attitude. It feels like to me, right. That we're not afraid to touch any subject this is and, and it cuts very deep into the realities of working within the architectural profession and it doesn't seem like there's any um topics that are off topic on our connect and so therefore i could imagine it just kind of it just bleeds architecture right and it would get good or bad it just seems like there's nothing that's off off limits i think that's true to a certain point the first kind of slap in the face of uh you know I wouldn't say censorship, but, you know, back in the early days of Arconnect, our tagline was 
pimping, pimping architecture since 1997. And that was the tagline that lasted until the early 2000s. So probably for about five years after we, we uh, launched in 97. And it was around 2004 that I decided to make Arconnect a real business. Until 2004, I had my own design uh, company on the side. That was that was my that was my work. Arconnect was just a passion project that I would spend too much time working on, and and I intentionally avoided any kind of advertising revenue. I didn't want to make any money because I I knew as soon as the site started making money, then it would get serious. And I wasn't really ready for it to be serious. But then when I did, you know, partially because I realized like I, my, my passion was our connect much more so than our client work. The first big advertiser that we had, they were ready to sign the, the contract. And they said, you know, this tagline pimp in architecture since 97, I don't were there's some people on our team that are, that are not feeling very comfortable with putting our, our brand <laughs> next to that line. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got it, you know, pimping is, is a, is a loaded, a loaded word. So we changed it. We changed it to uh, making architecture more connected since 1997. And uh, since then though, we have, we have avoided making any kind of partnerships or advertising relationships with any company or person that would enforce any kind of any kind of uh, rules or requests for for what we cover. Um, you know, we figure that if we cover what we believe is is right to cover, people will, will respect that. And um, as a result, we get a lot of pushback from people that don't agree with us. But that doesn't change our attitude. You know, sometimes somebody on our team will say, like, "Hey, we got some pretty harsh feedback on this article." And my response is usually like, yeah, there's two harsh um, examples of feedback from this article, but this article is also doing really well with a lot of people. So it's like, it's, it's a small minority of people that are, that are having a problem with it. And those people are probably just not, you know, our content's not for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How many different would you, I mean, this might be a bad way to characterize it, but how many generations of people do you think are on Arconnect? Well, it's it's interesting. You know, one of the one of the reasons that I wanted to start a podcast um, back in in 2014 was because I started hearing from some of the people that were regulars on Arconnect in the late nineties and early two thousands. And they were, and they were saying, you know, I, I, I don't have time these days to get online and, you know, read forums and, and even read the news. I'm so busy, you know, running a practice or just, you know, working as an architect. So one of the, one of the main um, target audiences for, for the podcast at the time was, just those people that that used to be on Arconnect all the time, and now they only have time to maybe catch up on things for thirty minutes, an hour, once a week. There are, considering that a lot of a lot of the people that were on Arconnect back in the in the late nineties were architecture students. Let's say 20, 20 years old in in uh, in ninety nine, they're mid forties now. You know, so and. The site did not only appeal to to young people back then. There were, you know, older people, a lot of professors, a lot of uh, 
older architects. So I would say, you know, at least two to three generations of, of people have been on Archonnect. I think that's super interesting because that, that to me parallels how a lot of offices are today. And I would say if I would say offices have more like four or five generations in them, even if you think about someone who's just coming out of school and someone who's basically retirement age, there's a lot of generation mix going on there. And I think the younger generations would probably characterize the older generations as not being too involved online. And that is a, that's something that I see on our connect is you, you can just kind of tell by the way some people write and share their experiences that they've been around for a while. And I think that that is super interesting. And I think a compelling reason to be on there because you do see that wide range of viewpoints that have, that are in the industry today. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it when I see people with more experience chime in. One, one problematic issue with a lot of topics that are discussed these days is that the topics are most actively discussed among very young people in the industry, which is great. I mean, the, the next generation of architects, I have tremendous amount of confidence in because I feel like they are setting themselves up to make some real change in the industry that the industry is, has, has needed for generations. But the problem is that we don't have enough more experienced sounding boards to, to kind of provide some more experienced wisdom into the conversation to, to, uh, to balance, you know, the idealism with the, the real world implications of, of some of those things. And I think, you know, just yesterday we published an op-ed by a friend of mine, Michael Pinto. I don't know if you know Michael Pinto. He, uh, he, we were at Sire together. Now he, he runs, um, he's, he's, I think the design director at NAC Architects in, in LA. He's, he graduated from Sire. He's worked at boutique firms. He's worked at corporate firms. So he wrote an op-ed about what's going on at SciArc right now and all the controversy that's happening um, with some of the faculty and, and just the bigger issues that have come up. And his perspective, I thought, was just such a nice, refreshing perspective because it was able to back up a lot of the ideals that young people have with, with experience and evidence that, yes, this, this is possible, what you're, what you're wanting to do. And I've seen it myself. You know, it's not like... But we need to get the whole industry on board here to 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 experience the changes that I've had the you know the the benefit of, of seeing for myself in the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that was a an interesting. It's not a scandal necessarily. Well, it's maybe some pieces of it are, but that whole topic has been super interesting. Uh, my co-host and I covered it on our other show, Arcaspeak, which has gotten. A little bit of talk, but I think one thing that we actually just recorded a follow-up episode regarding that topic for a bit of a tangent here, which was, why aren't we seeing more people actually talk about this? Because I think that this is all about, it's not about canceling certain individuals. It's about this conversation being allowed to bubble to the surface, which for decades, this conversation has not been enabled to bubble to the surface. And here it is. And I think it's a huge, huge, huge opportunity in so many ways to take care of some of these problems that have been in the industry for so long and, and actually understand it from all these different angles, because it was being presented from two or three, like really specific points of view. And that's what people are reacting to, but there's a whole gradient out there of perspective on these issues about why you're going to school, what you're going to do after school, where you're going to work after school, what your career is going to be like. I think that there's 
And and that's one thing I appreciate on our connect, right? Is that there is this ability for you guys to kind of cover it from many different angles and for everyone to kind of weigh in, in a safe place to do that. There's various levels of safety there, I'm sure. <laughs> right. But, but you know, it's a, uh, that people don't feel like they can't speak up on a place like our connect. Absolutely. And the interesting thing that's come out of this recent uh, controversy that, that, uh, was ignited with with the panel at SciArc was that it has inspired a lot of other people to share their stories of when they were young or when they were in school. And the consistent theme was that these stories that happened years ago, and it doesn't it's not necessarily a long time ago, even five years ago, even you know two or three years ago, was that those problems were just were brought up with administrations or with upper upper level uh, members of, of an organization. And we're just swept under the rug and, you know, some apologies were made, but we're, we're at a time right now where that people are feeling more empowered to share those stories, which can be very risky. I've, I've heard some personal um, stories from people that have been really shocking, but they're, they have no interest in bringing it up publicly because they know that it will change their, their lives in some way. And they're just not ready for it. But yeah, no, these days with, with uh, online communities and, and empowered individuals, the, the consequences are much greater. And I think people realize that, you know, I'm the whole cancel culture thing. I'm, I, uh, I think that there are many instances where it's unfair, but do some people need to be sacrificed in order for everyone to be shaking in their boots about, about behaving properly, you know, or behaving improperly to, to make that change. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe real world consequences and real world examples of, of, of people facing consequences is, is what's necessary. Do you see our connect as being a place that gives voice to those who need an outlet like this to share these kinds of things? Have you, yeah, definitely. It's not always easy to get people to, to share issues that that they feel uncomfortable talking about but we always try to provide a platform you know we've been in communication with uh well for example the the recent incident at shop architects you know the unionization effort at shop we uh we were in communication with with some of the people some of the architects at shop that were involved in this and they didn't want to go on the record which i i totally understand but we wanted to provide that platform to for them to um, have a place to speak their mind and share. But you know, then again, um, we can't just we can't we can't report on serious allegations without doing you know our due diligence and ensuring that the information is is correct. You know, we have a personal responsibility and a legal vulnerability. But you know, I think um, ethically, we need to we need to make sure that that the information that, that people share on, on our connect is true. I think we could start to wrap up here. I, I have a couple more ideas, but I'll just throw this one out there and we'll see where it goes, which is what is the best thing about architectural community online with our connect or, or in general? You know, I think as, as, as a parent, of teenagers, you know, I see the incredible toll that social media and online communities can have on kids in achieving this kind of unrealistic 
state of, of perfection in their lives. But I also, through my experience just uh, with Archonnect and the forum and, and the internet in general, it's also provided a place where people can, can share their problems with each other. And I think we're at a time, you know, in history where uh, it's unprecedented in that people are feeling okay with acknowledging that they may be suffering from things that, that previous generations may have felt like really lonely in. And and now they're recognizing that it's not a, it's not their own problem. It's a problem that a lot of people share. And in architecture, you know, there's a lot of issues that come up. There's a lot of mental health issues that, that arise in architecture. We've covered mental health a lot on Archonnect. And part of the reason for that is to raise awareness about the kind of more endemic uh, issues that, that exist not only in architecture, but, but, you know, in, in our culture in general. And I think that, I think it, it has helped, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I think that's part of the reason why, um, why people are feeling empowered to make change because they're starting to recognize that the change that, that has always bothered them personally is, is a, is a necessary change that, that their community needs. Yeah. That's interesting to think about and how you've kind of provided a place for that to happen. Because like you said, I think growing up in the profession of architecture, you're very much kind of in a silo of maybe a small friend group within an office. And there are certain things you can and can't say at that office, but because of the internet, right? And I think there's still a lot of people who practice out there who are totally, I don't want to say ignorant, but ignorant of the internet, that it exists and that it has changed everything. And, uh, and so for people to be able to not it's not just about not feeling lonely, but find people who have had similar experiences that can then help them navigate through this profession and that isn't just in their small friend group and it's not in their office is, is huge. And I think that that is a, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about Archonnect today is because it's provided a place for people to do exactly that. And it could be the good and the bad, but it's, it's the thing that it's the common fabric that weaves everybody together within this profession. Um, at least the ones who are willing to participate in that. And I think that's that there, you can't understate the, the role that that, ha- that that plays in, in a lot of people's day to day. Yeah. I mean, you know, when, uh, before the internet, the, uh, a typical architect would probably have a group of maybe 10 to 20 people that they could share their, their, uh, their thoughts with you know, either at a, at a firm or, or in school, but the internet has brought about this possibility to, to discuss issues, very specific issues at depth with people from all over the world, you know? So it's, uh, that difference has a big, big, big impact. Well, Paul, this has been a great conversation. I, I appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk us through the history, but also through like the, I think these more interesting, delicate, potentially issues that, that are all about having a community and and in this case online, but I really commend you for man sticking with it. This is a, I'd like you said, it started out as kind of this labor of love, like to, to kind of the side hustle of, of sorts, right. That turned into the, the main hustle. And I think uh, it's, it's a force on online that, that a lot of people should check out. Where can people follow what's going on with Archonnect? Obviously it's, it's Archonnect.com and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that 
that people can see or that they should know about or any ask of the audience that you might have? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I would love to for those for those uh, listeners that are interested in community. Uh, I would love to get more people with you know positive things to share to get involved because I know that it can be a little intimidating, you know, getting it onto our forum and there are a lot of bullies, you know, in the forum and. Uh, and, and it can be, you know, to try to, to try to stick it out. Cause we, we, we could use more, more positivity, more, more, uh, experienced, uh, wisdom in, in the forum as, as always. But so yeah, arconnect.com we're on all the socials at, at Arconnect. If you're looking for a job, you know, we, we there's a lot of, it's it, just, just for anybody out there that's thinking about a career change, there's never been a better time than right now. So um, we've got a lot of job opportunities on our connect on, on our connects job board. Yeah. It's our 25th anniversary. So we're, we're planning on some big updates this year and I'm not going to make any promises right now, but, but, uh, but stay tuned. Well, I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much for hanging out with us today and and sharing and and taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your interest. uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.